0: What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Mean Age Daydream, the show you dream about in your waking hours like a nightmare that just won't leave you. And I am Brian McWilliams, your Freddy Krueger for the next, I'm going to guess 30 minutes. This is going to be a little shorter of an episode. I am uh, very tired. It's been a, a long holiday weekend. We've had friends in town. I've had both kids sick now, and I think... I think I finally got in their sickness. So good times. And I get to go to Disneyland tomorrow. So I got to record this early, a day earlier than I usually do. And uh, I'm interested to see, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm interested to see the changes to Disneyland because if you haven't been paying attention Obviously, Disneyland and Disney as a company went ultra, ultra woke under the last hack CEO and to the point where they were just bleeding money. I mean, legitimately uh, lost a lot of subscribers to Disney Plus, the theater or the uh, theme park uh, attendance race has gone down. Now, that's kind of rebounded as well, because COVID had something to do with that. But at the same time, they also fired the previous CEO. Bob Iger is back in charge and Iger is on record as saying that he does not agree with the direction that Disney's taken. He said that while they always will be supportive of people that are LGBTQTIF, uh, thank God it's Friday, he doesn't think that they should have gone as far as they did. So. I'm curious to see when I walk in the park tomorrow, if they have brought back the, Hey, welcome to Disneyland boys and girls. If they have, uh, the princesses out in full force, you know, all these things that I think they tried to roll back a little bit and try to reconfigure for quote unquote, modern day audiences. If those have been replaced and gone back to the old style, because really when you go to Disneyland, Part of it is that you do want that old-school, wholesome family feeling of a yesteryear. Not to say that that is always the definitive best thing. Conservatives are often roasted for saying that they want to go back to the 40s and 50s and that the times were so great then. And then, of course, people point out the problems in the 40s and 50s as though we don't have issues in our modern day lifestyle today, like homeless rampantly uh, dying and pooping in the streets, fentanyl overdoses, a rampant war state that is uh, shown to 50 times the size that it was even back in World War. War One and World War II, yada, yada, yada. You get my point. Everything is subjective. And of course, subjective to the time you're living in. You obviously are far more inclined to think that you have it better and did it better and do it better and are so much more enlightened today than you ever were in the past. And I'm going to talk more about that because the main topic of the show today is the reimagining, the redoing, the rewriting of Roald Dahl, one of my own personal favorite authors. But before we get to that, guys, I want to tell you, you should, if you're not, join us at the Patreon or Locals community we have cultivated. You're not going to get More content, better content than you will find at the Lions of Liberty's Pride, our private group that's on Facebook, but of course, that comes with live streams, that comes with bonus shows like my good morning fuckhead rants, comes with secrets, lies, and cover-ups, comes with degenerate gamblers, comes with live streams, comes with... By the way, different tiers. If you have a product or service that you want to uh, promote on our podcast, well, if you join at the $100 level, you could actually have us do a shout-out slash short ad read for you. We'll do that uh, once a week. You're going to hear one at the end of the show, actually, for our buddy Tyler, who is a uh, an amazing rap artist. So you're going to hear his fantastic track at the end. But join us go to patreon.com forward slash lions of liberty and get in today as little as five dollars for all of our bonus shows or lionsofliberty.locals.com so check it out also guys we have a fun new tie-in sponsor actually you probably heard him on monday's show talking about his new chips line and that is the owner of masa chips m-a-s-a chips now Masa chips, pretty amazing because my wife, I don't know about your guys' wives, she is anti-seed oils. She's on the train. And it does certainly seem like probably you want to avoid those things. So we have a deal now. You can get 10% off your order at Masa chips. And you just go to Masa, M-A-S-A chips.com and then do slash lion's. Masa, M-A-S-A, chips.com forward slash lions. And then you'd promo code lions at checkout for 10% off. And these chips, by the way, are they're deep fried in uh, their tortilla chips, deep fried in beef fat. And if you have never had something deep fried in a fat, it's what used to be the best thing about McDonald's, right? Where People would love McDonald's fries before the goddamn vegans got involved was that they were deep fried in fat, man. You got to try these chips. Again, masachips.com forward slash lines. Use promo code lines. Okay. Roald Dahl. Now, if you're not familiar with Roald Dahl, well, first off, you're an idiot. Shame on you. But you probably have seen the movie The Witches. You probably have seen the film James and the Giant Peach. You probably... If you had any sort of childhood, have seen the film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Not the dog shit Johnny Depp remake version where they had all the Oompa Loompas. Because, you know, we couldn't use little people anymore. They had Oompa Loompas made from one uh, Indian midget who they had CGI replicated replicated uh, over and over and over again. It's cringy. And Willy Wonka was made out to be almost almost pedophilic by Johnny Depp. I'm a big Johnny Depp fan, not a fan of this rendition. I thought it was terrible. But the initial one with Gene Wilder, one of the best movies I've ever seen based off a really fascinating book, which I actually just read for the first time before I even heard of any of this to my child, who's three years old, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I read her pretty much everything verbatim, uh, I don't remember skipping anything other than than things that were worded in such an odd way because, of course, we're all uh, British and using old school lingo at times can be confusing to a young toddler. But again, it is up to my discretion as a parent reading it in real time. And fortunately, I can read quickly and think quickly, so I'm able to swap out those words. But it's up to me as a parent to decide what I want to share with my child and how I should edit the language she hears in a book. What it shouldn't be up to is the people that now are in control of the copywritten material that Roald Dahl had written, uh, a.k.a. his family. I'm sure it's a family trust or a publishing house, in this case, Penguin. But what we've seen is that in our modern era, because typically people that work in literary are going to be very much on the left spectrum of things, and let's call it a spectrum now, full bore, right? Can we can we say that? Am I going to get a lot of letters from people? Maybe, maybe not. Point being, they have there have been multiple uh, stories now that have been reported in various publications. <laughs> of course, the Telegraph now is telling me that I have to subscribe to read it when I read it on my phone. No problem. I'll find another resource for this. But reporting about the changes to Roald Dahl's writing that have occurred over the past couple of years. Now, Roald Dahl has been under fire a bit, kind of like the Dr. Seussian way for being, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Semitic uh, for having some views that were not in line with our modern day of thinking. This basically could happen with virtually anybody, because what happens is that your times change, your opinions change, and things that were t- kind of said in passing, or vociferously probably were accepted at this time and now have been changed so that they are very unpopular. That doesn't make them right. Okay, slavery is always wrong. Being anti-Semitic is probably always wrong, and I say probably because there's certain times where maybe somebody's anti-Semitic because they live in uh, and we're beaten to, beaten up by Jews every day. Still, as a whole, let's say it's pretty much wrong. I don't know raw circumstances, by the way. I don't know if he was. You know, beaten with like there's a show called Peaky Blinders, which I enjoy on Netflix about Peaky Blinders. They're called the Peaky Blinders because they had these caps with razors in them and they'd whip them off and they'd whip them across your eye and blind you with a razor blade that was hitting in the cap rim. Maybe Roald encountered Yamakos with the same thing. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I'm going to judge the writing of the man, which is not anti-Semitic in any way, uh, for what it is. And I think he is one of the best authors of uh, of fascinating, imaginative stories told for children that has ever lived. And many agree. However, over the weekend, it had come out that there were changes to Roald Dahl's initial writing. And these were things including in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which, as I mentioned, I read to my kid, things like this. Originally, they they, uh, describe Augustus Gloop, who was a big, fat, uh, he was portrayed as a German child in the movie, but I believe in, everybody was British in the uh, the book. But he was pers- he was described as a fat chunk, a selfish, uh, you know, horrible child who overate because his mother in- overindulged him. There were no limits to what he could or couldn't do. He didn't listen to his mother. He did what he wanted. and He was a fat slob. And in this day and time, when this book was being written we did look upon obesity as a negative. Why? Because of all the myriad health issues that were associated with it, uh, because it was associated with being slothful, not being uh, in control of oneself to limit portion size or workout, etc. I know that there are people that have thyroid disorders and everything else. I also know that many people claim to have these disorders because they are, in fact, lazy lumps. But... Now, in our current society, of course, you can't fat shame, which would have come in handy during COVID since so many people did, in fact, die because they were overweight. However, they have now swapped this out in the latest printings of these books. They have swapped out fat with enormous the word "ugly" is no longer to use to describe characters, and you know he will describe characters regularly as ugly, whether they be elderly grandmothers who are evil and witchy, or uh, or ugly aunts who are morbidly uh, obese or terrifyingly skinny. Raw Dahl, because he is a an author trying to portray characters, will write people that are distinct. In their appearance. And of course, there's a reason for this because you're trying to evoke an imaginative response from your audience. And when your audience is made up of children, it is important, in fact, to create a easily referenced visual. But now we can't call people ugly. There's also uh, a and this is what I'm reading to my child right now. Here's some in uh, James and the Giant Peach. Aunt Sponge, and this is what it used to read, Aunt Sponge was terrifically fat and tremendously flabby at at that. Now it reads, Aunt Sponge was a nasty old brute and deserved to be squashed by the fruit. So you can see that we are no longer allowed to fat shame, let alone describe somebody as fat. Now, just to talk real quickly, there's a huge difference between saying that she was a fat, slovenly pig right? What she is not saying here and just describing someone's physical appearance, which is fat to say that she was a nasty old brute gives literally to a child's mind. Number one has probably never heard the term brute, but if you were to think of that, you're probably imagining now, instead of a fat lady, you would now probably imagine that she is some sort of transgender man, because if you call somebody a brute, typically you're referring to a man and not a fat man, typically referring to somebody that is muscular and hairy and uncouth. That is in no way the character, by the way, which Roald Dahl has written in the original book. So let me, I, I don't want to bore you guys with all of these different changes. There's been many, many other changes. Um, and again, I'm, I'm pissed this Telegraph article now is giving me behind the paywall because that had more of them. But regardless, the point is, When you get into this type of 1984 censoring of language, not only is it disingenuous to the author's original intent, to the quality of the book, to the quality of the prose, which oftentimes, if a writer intentionally uses a word, they did so for a specific reason. To go back now as an editor or as some woke douchebag and say that we have to change language in books because it might be offensive to our modern-day ears is insulting to the reader. Who now is presumed to have no understanding of the context or time period in which it was written, or cannot be left to their discretion? Because, right? as I said, my problem here is far less that people might think that the language used could be offensive for the time. And there's, you know, certain times he describes like oompa loompas as a in the book they're described as a native people that he goes and they're they're eating cacao beans right and they they love him they're described as a very simple cacao living people and i guess were one so inclined and obviously people that are on the left are very inclined to find racism and everything you could say well okay that's a little racist that he's describing these this you know these native tribes in the way he is and he takes them out of their native habitat oh my god can you believe this colonizer in the book of course it's described as a positive because he gives them all that they want in the chocolate that they crave and view as the greatest good in their society. He takes them out of poverty and puts them in his factory and, and gets them all dolled up and all this other stuff. But, These people now are looking back on this and saying, well, we have to change this for the good of society. We can't trust our readers, who are obviously idiotic buffoons, morons, and imbeciles to judge for themselves what can or cannot be shared or should not be shared with their children and left to their discretion to decide that. Instead, they're changing the author's works, which, again, takes a piece of history out of the context and flavor of the book. And that is also really an assault on, if you think about how we view our world, and this to reference 1984, putting things down the memory hole, adjusting things so that you don't remember them accurately, because that is how you can slowly erase things from history. But that deprives you of the power of understanding the impact that those things have on history, be they good or bad. That's what drives me really insane about trying to retroactively change language in these books. It's vitally important that these languages stay the same. It's vitally important that we have context to realize, even if you're on the absolute extreme left, you should understand that you need to have a contextual uh, example of where we've come from to reference. And you can have that discussion with your child in real time and say, well, this term, you know, he says this word. Right, because your kids probably gonna come up and say, Well, mommy, you know, this this is in here, or daddy, if they're reading on their own, if you're reading it to them, as I said, you could read it to them verbatim and explain it, or you can swap it out at your own discretion. But the point is, you now have an opportunity to educate your child, you have an opportunity to discuss, to compare and contrast societies where they might live. And these people view that as an absolute evil to give you that choice, to give you the opportunity to look at what once was an accepted point of view, accepted language, standardized to the point where an editor reviewed it, printed it, published it, and it became one of the best-selling books from one of the best-selling authors of all time, or I should say series of books, one of the best-selling series of books of all time. They looked back on that and decided, well, we can't allow you to have a contextual point of view to compare and contrast whether or not you agree with what he said or not let alone to try to understand it and explain it from a historical point of view and give your child or give yourself the opportunity to understand the context of it in regards to the time period. This was my issue when they talk about tearing statues down as well. This is my issue when they talk about uh, revisionist history like the bullshit 1619 Project, which seeks to rewrite history completely from a leftist worldview perspective. You cannot simply erase history by erasing the words in which were used in that time period to paint a rosier picture or to, in this case, literally change entire paragraphs of a book which were written by the author painstakingly. Now, I myself am a writer. If you've listened to this podcast, you know this for a fact. I am a screenwriter. I am, uh, you know, I have a children's book that I'm sending to, to, uh, managers and literary agents right now that I wrote for my child. I am a writer. It's what I went to school for. I went to school for English for the writing emphasis. Penn State. Let's go state. That is the passion I have. I got into this line of, uh, well, I can't even call it work. This hobby, let's say, and also public relations as an extension of creativity and writing. Right. Because I got into public relations because it gave me an opportunity as a creative outlet to find narratives that I could weave throughout the news cycle and find interesting ways to tie in my clients into what's going on in the world. It was a fun exercise. When it comes to this, it's interesting to me. And again, one of the focuses of the show to find ways that we can change the understanding of the world by painting a different picture. And that is the focus of the show and the focus of the book that I'm working on. Now, I guess it's the focus of the show. It is one of the focuses because it takes time for me to create the narratives. But the end goal that I have in mind is to create a world in which I'm not only talking about libertarianism and anarchism from the point of view of breaking it down in real time as I do, but also in how we will portray the future, the potential of the future under a libertarian and anarchist mindset and philosophy in real practical application, but also beyond that into the realm of what can be possible, almost bringing in a sci-fi aspect to it or a, uh, I guess, a fantasy aspect to it. Now, this sounds ridiculous to some people, but that is literally what happens with the major political parties. When the Democrats promise you a utopia filled with people that don't have to work, where everybody has the same equal outcome in life, and that nobody's starving to death, and that a lack of competition is a good thing. Well, they are selling you an absolute line of bullshit. It is sci-fi beyond the point of ridiculousness because it's been tried and failed. But you understand where I'm coming from when I say I am a writer with a writer's mind. And I can tell you, when you're writing, you choose words, you choose paragraphs, you choose the way in which every single thing in your book is described with painstaking detail in order to give the the reader an experience and provide them with a flow of prose. By going back and altering that, you insult the the writer's name, you insult the writer's work, you completely degrade the experience. And on top of that, You now are insulting your audience by depriving them of the ability to figure out for themselves whether or not they understand, believe, acknowledge, don't believe, are offended by, whatever it might be. They deserve the right to be and feel what they're going to feel depending on the original text. These people have decided you don't even deserve the right to be offended by what Rawl Dahl had written originally. And that should be the most offensive thing of all. To think that you're so stupid, your opinion so infinitesimally unemployment. I, wait, infinitesimally. Uh, infinites. I cannot think of the word right now. I apologize, guys. This is what happens when I get really, really tired. Uh, Point being, your opinion is so small (laughs) that they cannot even bother to allow you to have it. That's how little your opinion means in the grand context of things to these people. Your opinion, as offended as it might be, cannot be permitted because they have bigger plans for you. So shut the fuck up, get out of the way, and read the dog shit that editors... Think is better for you than the original, very gifted, very beloved author. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. I am. I. I really cannot describe you how how tired I am. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about this briefly, because I know a lot of people aren't necessarily, or at least hopefully, I'm trying to draw on people that aren't necessarily in the uh, the small libertarian. Anarchist family here that definitively would care about the Rage Against War rally that was organized by the Libertarian National Party and Angel McArdle and the People's Party, which of course is a more commie leftist organization than I would personally be a fan of. They had a rally this past week in Washington, D.C. Now, of course, this is against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. With Russia and, uh, of course, NATO's involvement, which I'm not going to get into the details of whether or not you can blame NATO. I've already done shows on this. My opinion should be fairly well understood about NATO and how the encroachment of a quote unquote defensive organization, in fact, is quite an offensive act. And uh, there was a great video, by the way, an AP reporter was questioning the current uh, secretary of defense on just why Putin should not view NATO as a uh, an offensive organization, and why you know Russia putting troops at its own border was uh, seen as somehow a provocative action, even though Ukraine is not part of NATO. But I digress. I don't want to get into this point. So they had a big rage against war rally, and. It's been getting quite a bit of criticism. There was a, an issue about Scott Ritter speaking there, who was, yes, convicted of uh of you know, I guess, attempting to solicit sex from a minor. This happened not once but twice, which is highly questionable, right? I think uh, you know, once shame on me, uh twice, uh, shame on or once shame on you, twice shame on me. Right. Hard to believe that it's a coincidence twice. But he was. Asked to step back. He did. Great. The bigger issue has come from the involvement and some of these pearl clutchers in the party on the libertarian side of things saying that they were outraged that the libertarian party would be combining with what would be viewed as a very leftist socialist organization, right? An organization that without a doubt wants to take guns, wants to, uh, to take away your ability to, to make money, to live your own life, to run your own business, et cetera. Things that libertarians would not be fans of. I understand this, right? I can't say that I would have gone out of my way to combine with them personally either. I don't think it's necessarily a good look. At the same time, as a realist, I also understand that if the Libertarian Party had simply had a rally in D.C., well, your turnout's probably not going to be that great, right? Because now you've just got – you've you've got a small segment of the population – Growing, but a small segment of the population that's asked to circumvent, you know, get, get rid of their plans, fly across the country in some circumstances to coordinate into a rally at the, you know, wherever it was, Capitol, Capitol building. It makes sense to try to build a little bit more of a coalition and bring in other people, especially when you look at what you're up against. You're up against the Democratic and Republican parties, both of whom are obviously very pro-war. Right. There's nothing been demonstrated except from very few cases in the, the legislation, legislative body that have had any opposition to war. The funding for Ukraine that continuously has passed is a perfect example of that. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that uh, as well, uh, before I wrap the show up and, and Joe, piece of human shit Biden doubling down on our support for Ukraine. But you're up against the two major parties, both of whom are in the, pocket of the military industrial complex among other people's pockets so yes you do need to have some coalition building you have to have some people that you're not necessarily going to agree with on every issue there in fact the odds of libertarians agreeing with every fucking person out there on issues are virtually nil because we can't even agree on every issue amongst ourselves and that was really what pissed me off about this because i give angela McCardle credit I give the organizer from the People's Party credit. At least they tried to do something to make a difference. War is still one of the greatest evils being perpetrated on the entire population of the world. And this Ukrainian war and this NATO situation is a perfect example of it. Which, again, I'll get to in just a second because Joe Biden had a a tweet that is so perfectly idiotic. It sums up everything there is to hate in one perfect satanic verse. But to think that you're going to make a dent without bringing in people you may not ideologically be completely in sync with is utterly moronic. You're up against the behemoth. You're up against the Leviathan here. You're going to need to pick up your skirt and, you know, maybe step in a little shit along the way if you're going to try to make a difference. Now, there's a bigger debate as to whether or not rallies actually do anything. I'm not going to get into that today either. I'm happy to have that conversation in another show when I'm not trying to keep my eyes open. But I give them credit for trying. I give them credit for trying to do something, to try to make an impact, to try to make a dent in this nonstop march of war engines that has been churning so badly that they're literally short on supplies, short on tanks and guns and bullets throughout not just the United States, Who who is, we've ramped up, by the way, our creation of armament of uh, shells and of bullets and everything else to fund this fucking war that United States should have no business being involved in. The broader European nations in NATO, by the way, also are short on armaments because they're all sending so much crap to ukraine that now there's a shortage of military armament which means what's it going to mean oh that's right that the costs going to go up to replace them for our nations which is going to come right back to us as taxpayers so we get to pay for the war. We get to pay for the armaments. We get to pay more for the armaments because now there's a shortage of armaments. Then when the war is done, we get to pay to rebuild everything. And because of the inflation caused from all of these dickhead nations shutting down over COVID on top of all of the billions and billions and billions of dollars allocated to fight this war that we're sending over to Ukraine, 30% of which is actually going towards anything uh, you could call quote unquote good or for the cause, 70% of which is just being siphoned off. That was actually not 70%. I don't know the exact numbers. I would be able to tell you more specific numbers because CBS News had a report on that talking about how much money was being siphoned off, except CBS News pulled it down because the White House asked them to. Because, you know, it wasn't OK to share how much of the, the the money that's causing all this inflation that is coming out of our coffers. We're sending over there. It wasn't okay for them to report that so that the public could understand just how much of that was being stolen. And of course, CBS News rolled over and let uh, the Biden administration and the military industrial complex just take turns fucking their ass on that. Because, you know, journalism. Democracy dies in darkness, guys. So anyway, got off in a tangent here. I'm sorry. I... Uh, <laughs> I got a, I got off on such a tangent there. I can't even remember where I was going off on. Biden joining Ukraine. Yeah, well, whatever. I'll circle this back to the Ukrainian and, uh, and Joe Biden here. God, I'm so tired. Okay. So Joe Biden went over to, to visit Zelensky. On President's Day, which was really funny, right? Really funny. President's Day. Joe Biden leaves the United States of America, goes <laughs> over, to visit President Zelensky, president slash dictator Zelensky, because he has now eliminated all their political parties during wartime, uh, eliminated the number one religion in the country, the uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, and uh, of course, has also eliminated all independent journalists. But President Zelensky, uh, beacon of democracy. So he leaves. And by the way, just a quick, I'll share a quick thought on President's Day. I'm at it. I was just kind of chuckling to myself because president's day, I was thinking about it this way. I did a whole episode before my episode with the redheaded libertarian talking about how the absence of religion is a problem because it's being filled by the religion of the state uh, or the religion of climate or the religion of whatever. But really the government obviously wants the religion of the state to be the overarching goal, the overarching religion in the country. And, uh, I was just laughing because President's Day, when you really think about it, it's like Easter, right, for the the cult of the state. Except instead of Jesus being resurrected, we're celebrating the resurrection every four years of the newest tyrant to oversee the squashing of the citizenry of the nation. (laughs) That's that's all it is. It's still celebrating a resurrection, isn't it? Every four years, guys. So anyway, Dickhead Biden goes there, and he's uh, meeting with Zelensky. And he tweets this out. President Zelensky and all Ukrainians remind the world every day what courage is. They remind us that freedom is priceless and worth fighting for, for as long as it takes. For as long as it takes, guys, even though we are still feeling inflation, which went up. Joe Biden was, oh, inflation's damn bullshit, Joe. Inflation's up another 7% as the last report. They're remind us that freedom is priceless. Well, there is a price for it. The price is what we are all paying. The price is what every country in NATO is paying. The price is what the people that had depended on natural gas are paying, or fertilizer are paying. The people are paying for a uh, gasoline at the pump. Well, it's a pretty heavy price. I wouldn't say it's price. It's not like a. It's like a fucking Mastercard commercial, Joe. It's not uh, love. There is a price. It's just a price that you and your other cronies are willing to pay and that all of us, even though we're not willing to pay it, are being forced to pay. And it's not even a direct force because it's not like we're voting on it or that we're having a gun held to our heads in real time to pay for this. No, no, we're going to be paying for it in inflation and in taxation. So, you know, the gun will be held to our heads in, uh, what, April? It was it April 14th, April 18th? Something like that. I'm not sure exactly what the date is this year. That's when the gun will be held to our heads because if we don't pay our taxes, well, then you put us in prison. And if we don't pay the bullshit prices that on that you've imposed on us through inflation, well, our families starve or we can't go to work or we can't pay our mortgages. So, this is a pretty heavy price that's being paid all over the world because Russia is this this great Satan, this great evil, and we have to prop up a corrupt government run by uh, a psychopath who has taken away all of the freedoms from his countrymen. For what? Uh, Do we think Ukraine is going to win this? And and like I said earlier, what's left of Ukraine at this point is basically going to be a rubble-strewn battlefield. So, hooray? Unfurled the banner? Unfilled the, the, the victory sign? Just fucking ridiculous. Oh, I was talking about the anti-war rally. That's what I was talking about. <laughs> so, anyway, there's that. As long as it takes, this is Joe Biden. All right, last thing, guys, because I am uh, uh, hitting the wall so hard if you're, not, if you're not watching on YouTube, which, by the way, we're finally monetized on YouTube. We can finally do super chats and live streams. I'm not live streaming this one because I knew it would be a shit show. But um, we are going to be doing some uh, libertarians and living rooms drinking liquor shows. We'll live stream. We can now do the super chats and all that other good stuff. So excited for that. So follow us on YouTube. And you can watch YouTube right now to see just how tired and, and how slit my eyes are because I am barely keeping them open. Okay. Last thing I want to share with you, then I'll wrap this show up, is the Canadian government, which famously had frozen citizens' bank accounts, law-abiding citizens' bank accounts, because they dared to take part in a protest, the trucker's protest, that was against the COVID emergencies or the Canadian Emergencies Act, as it was called. This, of course, was to mandate vaccines, to mandate checks, to mandate all this other bullshit that Canada had to lock you in your house. I mean, Canada went truly insane. More insane than the United States did. So they did a you know, an internal look to see if that was warranted or not. Because obviously, you know, this is quite a big deal. Um. And you wouldn't want to just imprison your own people and cut off their ability to feed their families or buy goods or buy gasoline and limit their travel for no good reason. So we better take a look and see if what we did was rational and fair and moral. So let's hear what Trudeau's deputy prime minister had to say about this. Yeah, so look, when it comes to the financial measures, I think the most important thing uh, to start with is, as the Prime Minister just said, Justice Rouleau's conclusion, which was, and I'm going to read it, It was a powerful tool to discourage participation and to incentivize protesters to leave. I am satisfied that it played a meaningful role in shrinking the footprint of the protests and in doing so made a meaningful contribution to resolving the public order emergency. That is his broad conclusion on the economic measures. It's what we believed at the time. And I'm really glad that having looked at this so carefully justice rouleau agrees Mhm mhm So after reviewing the absolutely and I I have to think unconstitutional even by Canadians what are they I don't even know what they have in Canada um something written on the queen's knickers but shutting down your bank accounts for people that were protesting. And, and by the way, let me just remind you that Justin Trudeau, very recently, within the last couple of weeks, had talked about how Canada was a bastion for free speech. <laughs> Unironically, <laughs> he talked about Canada as a bastion for free speech within the last two weeks. And then the inquiry Undertaken by Canada's government on whether or not Canada's government was wrong to freeze bank accounts of protesters was justified or not. Well, they found that it was a very useful tool and was very effective in shrinking the size of the protest. Remember, you're allowed to be um, vocal in your opposition to government practices but if you are vocal in those practices, well, we think it's completely moral and completely fair to turn off your bank accounts because, and again, I don't understand how this, the, was the justice looking at this as far as the civil rights implications or the constitutional implications for the citizens or whether or not it was fucking effective? Because I don't understand a ruling that doesn't seem to take into account the civil rights implications of shutting down people's bank accounts for protesting, which is supposedly a legal thing to do in Canada, and instead focuses on whether or not it was effective in shrinking the size of the protests. Oh, Canada. And oh me, we're done here. Guys, thank you for listening. Thank you. For, I guess thank you for bearing with me on this show and um, I still think it was a solid show, despite how tired I am, despite my my eyes, which look like complete dog shit. Please do visit us on YouTube, Rumbler Odyssey, and see just how tired and shitty I look. Uh, you can do that at youtube.com forward slash lines of liberty. Same thing, rumble.com uh, forward slash lines of liberty and uh, odyssey. Find us there. Follow us. Hit the subscribe button so you get notified. Hit the notification button if you would. And uh, we will see you again next week when maybe we'll have a little bit more pep in our step. So thank you. Follow me at Brian McWilliams. Follow the network at Lions of Liberty. And don't forget, guys, of course, it's not just me here. We've got my show. We've got John Odermatt's show. We've got our Friday show, which lately we've been doing a lot of meme wars, which is our fun look. We each, John and I each pull three memes and uh, three or four, and you talk them through. But of course, last episode, we got, also got into the East Palestine fire. Uh, we also got into Chelsea Handler talking about how happy she is to not have kids. We got into a lot of things. So check that out. Please subscribe to the network. Please tell a friend. Please like, share the show. If you don't mind giving us a five-star review, that would be great on iTunes. Uh, The Mean Age Daydream solo feed also, guys, if you don't mind following that. All right, that's it. I'm going to try to get some sleep so that I don't die tomorrow at Disneyland. All right, for me, Brian McWilliams from the Lions of Liberty Network and from Mean Age Daydream, keep those electric eyes on me, babe, and keep that ray gun to my head.